couple of things in life that tend to captivate most of us. One of them I thought about is time travel. I mean, think about it. Is that part of why, like, Back to the Future has such a beloved place in most of our homes? Like, honestly, how many of our homes is Hello McFly like a regular? I think part of it's because we think, wouldn't it be cool if we could travel back in time to this or that? And, and I think about the life of Jesus when he was here. What if we could go back and, and be there on those streets as he walked? Today, as I think about the death and, and burial of Jesus Christ, we, we obviously admit that we were not there temporally. You know, none of us in this room are even 100 years old, much less 2,000. But listen to this. We are intimately connected as believers in Jesus Christ to what happened on this day in his death and his burial. Another thing that captivates us, especially as believers, is a trip to Israel sometime in our lives. How many of us that's on your bucket list? How many of you have been? Listen, what I want to tell you is, I know we were not physically there in Israel when Jesus died and was buried. But once again, I want to reiterate, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are intimately connected with the crucifixion, death, and burial of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, on that day. So today I want to do three things. First, I want to look at the events of that pivotal day in history. Second, I want to look at how the New Testament later describes the connection of the believer in Jesus Christ to those events. And finally we will explore what that means for our daily lives. Three practical ways to apply these truths as we walk out of here, maybe even before we walk out of this room. Now, as we today zoom in on his death and burial, I know some of us are antsy to get to the next chapter because we know what, what do all the preachers say on Easter? It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Amen. Just... Okay, just think of this as part one of a two-part series. Come back next week for that part. Don't, don't give up on us. We're, we're going to get there, Lord willing. But today I want to start in Mark chapter 15, verse 33. And I want to look at our sin upon our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross. Verse 33, when the sixth hour had come... Last week, Bill oriented us to the timetable here. You remember what time the sixth hour is here? High noon. High noon. There was darkness over the whole land. Yeah, he went and threw two timetables at you, didn't he? The Roman and the Jewish. I hear you. <laughs> it's the other one. High noon. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. Darkness over the whole land at what is normally the, the brightest part of the day, right? We're going to see as we dive in that this was a physical manifestation of the darkness that, that, that was upon our Lord on that cross. Your sin and mine upon him. Let's go, go further to get there. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Now, we don't know if these people legitimately misunderstood what he meant. I think that's unlikely because as Bill told us last week, most Jews knew this psalm. Maybe they're just mocking him by saying again, let's see if Elijah comes and rescues him. They've already done that, right? But we know what the phrase means. It means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I'm thankful that Bill reminded us last week that that was connected to a whole psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 22 in our Bibles. And, and that psalm went on to talk about trusting in the Father, even in the darkness. So Bill did a wonderful job of bringing out that even at this moment, Christ trusted his Father. We need that for context. But there's also another danger with this phrase. The danger is that we minimize the reality of the pain of this phrase when Jesus said it. There was much pain in this phrase when he said it, just as when the psalmist said it. If you've ever been in that moment where you felt the same, you know that pain. You know that pain. Why? Why the, the darkness? Why the pain? Listen to what author Brian Threckheld said. He said, in that pivotal moment in time, Jesus became guilty of Saul's persecution and murder of Christians, Hitler's Holocaust, Jezebel's immorality, Elvis's drug abuse, Stalin's massacres, Osama bin Laden's murders, not to mention our own sins. As Galatians says, he became a curse for us. There was pain in that cry. Isaiah 53, 6. So we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. John brings it home in the New Testament. 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does propitiation mean? It means he satisfied the Father's wrath toward our sin. Now, does that mean that, that everyone in the world receives that salvation? No. What does John tell us in 3.16? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes, trusts, put their faith in him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. There are a lot of things we wrestle with in this world. None is more important than that. Have you trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for your salvation? Verse 37. Look at his death. Jesus uttered a loud cry and, and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We like that detail. John at the first service was talking with me about it afterwards. Top to bottom. Does, does that not symbolize to us that that tearing came from heaven to earth? 
I think it's likely, right? What was that curtain? If you know the tabernacle or the temple, you know it's the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was from the rest of the temple. God's Shekinah glory dwelt there. And one man, once a year, if you look at Leviticus 16, went in there and only with blood to put on the mercy seat before the ark, on the Ark of the Covenant. No one else could enter. If you and I had lived at that time, we would have been on the outside of entering in to that Shekinah glory of God. So what kind of promise is this when we read our New Testament as believers and get to Hebrews 6.19 and the author tells us we have a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. We get to enter in where only the high priest could, only once a year. Through, through Jesus, Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That would have blown the Jews' mind if you had dropped that on them in their wilderness wanderings. Yeah, go ahead. Enter in there with confidence. Uh-oh. <laughs> I heard what he said. I heard what he said. How? How in the world is that possible for you and I? Believer? We have to go to John to, to get the fullness of this. John 19.30 says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Anybody know the Greek word for that? It is finished? Tetelestai. It was a term you'd hear in the marketplaces. You go to the vendor to buy something and you find what you want, you put it on the table and you put the payment down and he would have some kind of form on parchment or papyrus and he would write to Telestai. You know what that meant? Paid in full. Paid in full. That's how he paid the price for your sin and mine. And that curtain tore from, from top to bottom. Martin Luther, the great reformer, spoke of something he called the great exchange. How many of you go to flea markets and trade stuff with other people? So some of you think pretty proud of some of the deals you've made? I tell you, there's no deal like this one. And it has nothing to do with our pride or effort. Listen to this exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a trait is that. He took our sin and gave us the righteousness of God as our standing before the Father. Verse 39, when the centurion, likely leading the proceedings here, who, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, and you wonder what went through him as he said this, as he finally realized, truly this man was the son of God. I want to go on to his burial. Verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and, and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. I just want to say bless the faithful women who follow Jesus Christ in our church. 
there were faithful women who followed Jesus throughout his ministry, and they comprised the majority of those who were with him in this darkest of times. God bless the, the faithful women who follow Jesus. Verse 42 says, When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Think of the courage of this man. He was a member of the Jewish council, the council that had sent him to his death. Okay, so it takes courage before those people, right? But also before Pilate, who had condemned Jesus, even though he washed his hands of it, he sent him off to death. To ask for his body would openly admit that, that he was a friend of his. It says he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse of our Savior to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud. Some of you may have watched some shows about that. And taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Can you, can you picture this in your mind? Likely a cave with a large opening and a large circular rock in a groove next to the opening so that it would be able to be pushed, usually by several men because of its weight. If they put Jesus' body inside and then push that, and you can almost, if you imagine it, hear the thud of that stone as it sinks into the notch in the ground to close in the body of our Lord Jesus. Can you, can you just imagine his body there in the darkness, in the cold, the, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ? Now we know when we look at the other gospels, even where he was buried was prophecy fulfilled. Matthew 27, 57 tells us one other detail about Joseph of Arimathea. He was a rich man. Did you know that was prophesied back in Isaiah 53, verse 9? It says, they made his grave with the wicked. In other words, he was buried, just like everybody else. And with a rich man in his death. It was prophesied that he would be buried in connection with a rich man. Would you say, what? What does his death and burial have to do with me today as a believer in Jesus Christ? And often where we first go, and we should, we say, well, it was for me. It was substitutionary. He, he took my place. That, that should have been me. And because of that, if I turn to him in faith, I, I have forgiveness of my sins. I have eternal life. I have salvation. And that is absolutely true. Absolutely true and foundational. But there's more that, that flows out of that. There are realities in this that affect not only your spiritual standing, but the way you live your very life as a believer this side of heaven. Okay? You are intimately connected with him in these events. Spiritually, you are in him in him, in his crucifixion on that rough wooden cross, in his death as he breathed his last. 
in the cold, dark tomb as he was buried. They say, that's nice, but what does it mean for the way I live? I want to tell you three things it means for the way we live as believers in Jesus Christ. First, you have a new freedom in your life. You are dead to sin. You are dead to sin. Listen to Paul and ask yourself, do I believe this? Romans 6, 2, he describes us as we who died to sin. Okay, Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And I want to ask you, do, do you know that? Do you believe that? Do we? That, that in Christ you're dead to sin? You believe that? You believe that you are no longer enslaved to it? Do you believe that you have been set free from it? Do you believe that it no longer has dominion over you? What are we saying here? It's not just the, the penalty of our sin that Jesus dealt with. It is also the, the power of sin in our lives. You know what it really comes down to? Every time you are tempted as a believer in this life, you now have a choice. You have a choice in him to say no. To say no. Dead to sin. That's picturesque. Death in the Bible always refers to separation. But the death picture, I, I think of a, a human master-slave relationship where all his life this slave has done what his master tells him. Go plant the seed. Go harvest the field. Go get the water. And then one day the slave dies. And imagine the master shows up at the side of his casket and starts yelling at the slave, Go prepare dinner. Go prepare dinner. Now listen, that would be very unnatural for that man to get out of his casket and go fix dinner, right? <laughs> In fact, if something like that happened, you might have the premise for a new Stephen King novel. Why am I sharing that? Because it is every bit as unnatural for the believer when sin comes knocking to say, yes, I will do what you say because you are dead to sin. You are dead to sin. So I want to say something here that's probably going to ruffle some feathers at first because some of us know our Bible. I'll, I'll qualify it and then hopefully it'll come around. It's okay to be true to who you are. Now why does that ruffle feathers? Well, I think about something one of our members posted on Facebook this week. It was a meme of someone flipping through the Bible with an incredulous look on his face saying, me looking for where in the Bible it says follow your heart. Because guess what? Good luck finding that. The, the biblical picture of the human heart apart from Christ is not pretty. It's deceitful and wicked. That's why when I say it's okay to be true to who you are, some of you rightly cringe a little bit. Let me qualify it. It's okay to be true to who you are if it's who you are in Christ. Say, how do I know who I am in Christ? Get in here and read who you are in Christ. Follow the lead of the Holy Spirit 
as he leads you in the truth of who you are in Christ. Because every time we choose to live in sin as a believer, it is a denial of who we really are in Christ Jesus. If you're true to who you are in him, you will say no when that temptation comes knocking. So you have that new freedom. You're dead to sin. Second, you have a new affirmation to make. A new affirmation to make. Paul goes on in Romans 6, 10 through 12. Talking of Jesus, he says, The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourself dead to sin. Other translations use different words. The NIV says, count yourself dead to sin. I grew up with the KJV. Who knows what the word is there? Reckon. Reckon yourself to be dead to sin. Now, that's a word we used in Ohio sometimes. <laughs> I reckon. And give, this is hypothetical, but it could have gone something like this. On a Friday night, a conversation comes up and says, are we having biscuits and gravy for breakfast tomorrow? Somebody says, I reckon so. What's that mean? I affirm that to be true, right? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but I think about this reckoning, and I think about something. We talked about knowing that we're dead to sin, but reckoning is, is different. We, how many of you know we can know something up here? Maybe we heard it a long time ago. Maybe we heard it on Sunday. But then we file it way back in the recesses of our mind where it really has little impact on, on our lives. Reckoning is something more regular and intentional than that. And to illustrate that, I, I brought something with me. This is something precious to me. I was nervous to even bring it. This is my chili recipe <laughs> for the cook-off. You can see it's got stains and, and wear and tear on it. I, I took a picture of it in case I lost it today. Listen, I, I sort of know this recipe from throughout the years. It, but, but most of the time, you know where it sits? It sits tucked away in a recipe box in our kitchen unless we pull, do what? Pull it out, read it, go get the ingredients, and, and put them in the crock pot and, and make it up. I, I want to think of, of reckoning the truth of being dead to sin like that. It's not okay to hear it here and then just lose it somewhere in the back of our minds. we got to pull it out. And if we do, you know what we're going to start doing on a daily basis? We're going to start living that way. We're, we're going to turn to the Word and we're, we're going to start looking at verses like Psalm 119.11. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I reckon I'm dead to sin. And you tell me memorizing your word helps me with that? I'm going to memorize your word. Guess what? You tell me I'm dead to sin and you tell me something else. 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Guess what? I'm going to reckon myself dead to sin, and I'm going to look for the escape that you promised instead of caving without even looking for your way out. I'm going to start praying like you told me to pray in Matthew 6, 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. When you start to reckon it to be true, you know what? 
It's like pulling that truth out of the, the recipe box and mixing it into the, the crock pot of your life, right? I think about it like this. Here's another one that maybe some of you are uncomfortable about. It's okay to talk to yourself. It's okay. May, may, might not want to do it in front of other people. I don't know how comfortable you are, but David did it in the Psalms. In the 40s there, why are you downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in the Lord. He's, he's having a self-dialogue. Why? It's okay to talk to yourself if you're talking the truth. In this case, it's okay to talk to yourself if you're reckoning yourself to be dead to sin. What if every morning when we got up, we, we affirmed that? Some, something like, I am dead to sin. I believe that truth you said about me, Lord. Now please help me in the power of your spirit to live that out today. What if we, before we ever walked out our doors and maybe even got out of our bed, we started with that affirmation. So we're dead to sin. We have a new affirmation. We need to reckon it. Finally, you live in a new reality with this truth. You, you can put sinful deeds in your life to death today. Today, maybe even before you leave this room this morning. Listen to what Paul goes on to say. He says, if these things are true, there's, there's an application in your life. Okay, chapter 6, verse 12, he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That is a choice. I'm not going to let it have its way anymore because I believe what you've said about me. Verse 13, do not present your members, the, the parts of your body, do not present them to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. What does that mean? It means don't, don't give your mouth today to that wicked slander. You know, it means don't give your eyes to that evil lust. Don't give your ears to that profane filth. Don't, don't give your hands to that sexual sin. And I could go on and on. Don't, don't do that. But you say, how? Because if you're like me, living in this world, even though you believe these things, you, you admit there's a real battle with the flesh that, that goes on until our bodies are redeemed, right? There's a battle. Can we admit that? Okay, so we say, how, how, how? God gives us that too, Romans 8, 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, by the Spirit, God himself, third member of the Trinity, living within you, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's how, that's who. It's God who lives in us, depending on him in faith in that moment of need. Did you notice the, the gravity of the word Paul uses here? He's, he doesn't say if by the Spirit you stop the deeds of the body. If by the Spirit you, you pray about these deeds of the body. Praying is good, don't get me wrong. But what does he say here? If by the Spirit, what, what are the three words? You put to death. That's a violent phrase, isn't it? I think about a sermon I once heard from John Piper. He, he preached on this and he said, Make war against the sin in your life. Put it to death. The, the old authors called it mortification. Mortification. Put to death the deeds of the body. It's violent. 
I know in this world sometimes we're walking around and we get this kind of anger, this rage, this stirred up thing inside of us. And here, I want to say something else that may ruffle feathers at first, but let me qualify it. It's okay to unleash some holy hatred. It's okay if it's directed at the sin in your life. It's okay. You know why it's okay? Because God hates it too. God hates it too. I could walk you through this book cover to cover. I could take you to a garden where two people were exiled with a death sentence because they disobeyed him on one point. I could take you to a flood where he destroyed the whole planet minus eight people because sin had spread like a cancer through his creation. He hates sin. I could take you to the Israelites in the wilderness where he commanded the Levites to pick up swords and kill their brothers because of the idolatry that they had practiced. I could take you there again where he sent fire, plague, and pestilence for murmuring. God hates sin. I could take you to the New Testament, Acts chapter 5, where he destroyed Ananias and Sapphira on the spot for lying about how much they contributed to the church. I could take you to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine 29 through 30, where Paul speaks of those dying early because they took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. I could take you to the cross. Thank goodness. Thank God. Think of the wrath of the Father against sin that he would pour it out on his own beloved son. God hates your sin. If you want to unleash some hatred in your life, direct it toward the sin in your own life. Blow it away with his power. I want to talk for a minute about the danger of underestimating the power of a weapon. We saw it in graphic form in Hollywood this week. On a movie set, Alec Baldwin was filming a uh, film called Rust. And he picked up a gun that he assumed was a harmless prop from all I've read. Fired it. It hit a woman and she died. What a tragedy. The danger of underestimating the power of a weapon. Listen, I think some of you hear what I'm talking about today and you're thinking of it as some kind of nice Sunday morning prop. You're like, that sounds cool. And then here I even get kind of excited about it. But Scott, you know that tomorrow when I turn on my computer... I'm going to that same porn site I always go to because that's just how it is. You're thinking, boy, that really got me rallied on Sunday. But when that gossip starts up at work or school, you, you know I'm getting in because I just can't, I can't resist, right? You hear me talking about it this morning, but you're saying, come on, Scott. You know, once I get into the, the weekly grind in my family and the stress of all the daily events, I'm going right back to that same harshness and anger and rudeness that I pour on my family? What are you doing? You are underestimating the power of a weapon. The truth I'm talking about is more than a prop. Okay, it is loaded with all the power of God himself in the Holy Spirit. He has given you the power to live out what we're talking about. Do not underestimate the power of this weapon. What if we say, well... I'm forgiven in Christ. What's the big deal if I gossip at work? or It's all covered. If I go back to that site, it's all forgiven. You know what Paul would say to us? Romans 6, 1. 
He dealt with this. He said, what, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it any longer? That's what Paul says. I want to encourage us to go blow that sin away in the power of the Spirit. Maybe before we even leave this room today. I've seen it in my own life. I talked about porn. Guys, you ever want to talk about victory over porn with God's help? I last looked at that over 20 years ago, but there were two or three years in my life where I was ensnared. God set me free by his grace and his power. We've got to talk with each other, encourage each other in this. It's a real battle, but there's real victory to be had in the Lord. Most of us will admit there's a tension, right? Because we hear this and we look at our lives, and if you're like me, you know you don't, you rarely go a day or a week without, without blowing it in some way, shape, or form, correct? Correct? You know this to be true, you believe it, but maybe this afternoon you're going you're gonna to sin. Guess what? 1 John provides us a beautiful balance on this, okay? And I think if we walk in this balance, we do well biblically. Three truths from 1 John. First truth is living a holy life in the light is expected for the believer in Jesus Christ. It is expected. First John 1 John 1.6, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. A holy life is expected for the believer in Jesus Christ. Second thing we see in 1 John, living a perfect life this side of heaven is denied. It's denied flat out. Thank goodness. Okay, he's real. Look, 1 John 1.8, he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. You know, the only two people in my life that I ever met that, that claim they reached some kind of sinless perfection, not only in their standing before God, but which I believe, but in their actual behavior, the only two people that claim their behavior here was sinless. You know what they had in common? They were single. They were single. And I told them that. I said, it's easy for you to think that because you live by yourself. You, li you live closely with a spouse or you live in close relationship with other people in the church or anywhere. You're going to find out real quick what a sinner you are because sometimes you get impatient. And sometimes you, you, you say something you shouldn't have said. And, and sometimes you don't listen like you should. Listen, this says if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Okay, so where do we go with that? Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, purify us from all unrighteousness. The balance. Here's the third and final point from 1 John. I think 1 John 2, 1 and 2 gives us the balance just so beautifully. It says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. That's a pretty clear thesis statement. That's what they call it in high school, right? When you say, this is what this paper's about. He says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Where's the balance? But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And I sum that up as an affirmation someone else wrote, but I say some mornings. I will hold myself to God's standards but measure myself with his grace. Could, could we live like that as believers? 
Now, there's a tension when we think about this battle, right? I think about something else that happened in Ohio. My, my brother and I not, not only got to see our father and mother in his time of need around his surgery, there was one morning in the living room. I was sitting next to my mom on one couch and my Uncle Daryl. Yeah, we got a Daryl back there. Other brother Daryl. He, he was sitting on the couch. <laughs> he was sitting on the couch across from us, and he was reading the paper. And like most of us who read the paper these days, he's like, "Man, this world is going crazy. <laughs> it's going crazy. What's going on out there?" And we talked a little bit, and and I said, "You know, that is true. That's true. But I know somebody who's going to make it all right one day for those who believe in him." You know what he said? He said. I just don't know if I'm worthy. And I said, that's the point. That's the point, Uncle Daryl. None of us are worthy. I told him from Ephesians 1 where it says, in him we have redemption through his blood. And my mom went on to say, Daryl, it's not by works. Well, he asked him, have you trusted in what Christ did on the cross for your sin? That's grace. Grace ain't grace if we're worthy. We pray for that seed that was, was planted there. That's the bottom line. If we're believers, our, our grace and power to live it out come in Him. Our Savior, who was crucified and died on that cross and, and was buried in that tomb. We live in Him. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, No matter how many promises God has made there, yes, in Christ. In Christ. Now I want to share something with you just briefly from Ephesians 1. It's a homework assignment. I want you to go home and read Ephesians 1, 3 through 13. And I want you to read it. And I want you to circle every place in there. It says, in him, in the beloved, through Christ, or anything like that. I'm just going to summarize them here for you. But I want you to look at it for yourself. See, I'm not making up the centrality of this in him stuff to the Christian life. Watch this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Speaks of his grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We have redemption through his blood. He makes known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. In him we have obtained an inheritance. It's almost like Paul is going out of his way. I want to make sure they know it's in him. They can't do it on their own. In him. We have obtained an inheritance so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, in him, you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You get it? It's in him. It's in him. It's in him. If you've ever had a meeting with me at the church and my phone volume was on, you probably heard lots of Star Wars noises coming out of it. It's Darth Vader when an email comes in. It's Chewbacca when most, most texts come in. But when Carolyn texts, there's a special one. You know what it says? It says, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. <laughs> and I'll interrupt a meeting for that one. Yeah. 
but both her and I know that's not exactly true. The real way that ought to be phrased in our lives and in the lives of all believers, listen to this, help me, Jesus Christ, Messiah. You're my only hope. You're my only hope. The in him life is our only hope. Amen? Father, thank you for the provision of your son on that cross, the lamb of God who took our sin upon himself, was crushed, became this propitiation for our sins. And I pray, Lord, that we would not file our standing away as believers as some spiritual reality that will pay off someday when we get to heaven but has no impact on the way we live. What we've seen today in Paul's writings is this changes the way we live. We are dead to sin. Help us to reckon that to be so every day. And help us to put sin to death. Maybe even in this moment. Spirit, if there's something in my heart or the hearts of those in this room that needs confessed, may we lay it down. May we murder it with the help of the Holy Spirit this morning. Lord, give us strength to say no. It is not our master any longer. It has no dominion over us anymore. We are not enslaved anymore. And we say no by the power of the Holy Spirit and leave it here dead on the floor this morning in Christ. Help us, Lord. As we prepare to remember your death on the cross, Jesus, in communion, may you drive home the reality of its ramifications in our lives. May we never look at it as just some dry historical event in a book. May we realize our intimate connection in you. In Jesus' name we pray.